In 2014, Danny helped organize a charity tribute concert, just like his dad used to do. It featured an eclectic mix of heavy hitters, including Nora Jones, The Flaming Lips, Brian Wilson from The Beach Boys. Back in 2002, Danny Harrison mounted his first tribute to his dad, The Concert for George in London, featuring Paul, Ringo, Eric Clapton, Jeff Lynne, Tom Petty, and many others. This concert, George Fest, also features many stars, but it's different. These are his peers, and Danny says they had more freedom to rework those classic tunes. We never really got to do a, a tribute concert in America, per se, and we wanted to do a small club show, <laughs> um, something where we could you know, really get inside the songs and not have to be so rigid with the, with the um, sticking to the plan of, of how the original recordings were done. It's sort of the anti-concert for George. It's uh, <laughs> a lot of deep tracks and a lot of young uh, artists who've, you know, got really great different takes on the, um, on the songs themselves. This week's Winley was Fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. Well, let's see. We got a little bit of news. We've been talking about the theatrical release of Mae Pang's documentary. They have come out and said, well, it's going to be Thursday, April the 13th. Right, which is earlier than what they had planned. Correct. So there are three screens in this area. Don't know if there's going to be anything near Tyler, but you have the date. Go and look for it in your region of the country. We can't even get movies that are nominated for Oscars. <laughs> I'm glad you found a way to at least get it out for one day. Yes. Let's hope a streaming in home video release follows. That would be the normal pattern. Well, it's taking her a year to go from <laughs> one screening in Tribeca to letting anybody see it in any way. <laughs> right. So, all right, the other bit of news, which we briefly mentioned last week, but I wanted to talk about a little bit, while not an official announcement, Giles has a pretty good track record on these things uh, and said that what we're going to get this year is a 1965 box helping Rubber Soul together. Right, which, without saying so, also allows expansion on even that. If you're kind of doing a, an overall 65 box, you'd have things that were not on those albums, like Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out, and I'm Down, for goodness sake. Yes, it is. The version that was on Anthology, that we could conceivably get a full version of that. Right. Rather than the cut halfway in the middle one. It's a cool song. The harmonies are, are kind of bizarre, so it would be nice to have a, a Giles mix of that.
for the first time, that would be the drawing point. You know, there's some outtakes if you got troubles, and that means a lot. But it will be interesting to see whether they give us all 11 takes of help. Eight, take eight. Nine. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. No, probably not. But, <laughs> but they did give us how many takes of Yellow Submarine? <laughs> right. You could put out more CDs and just add another 50 bucks. That's the deal. So you got, you know, you're going to have two CDs, which are the two main albums, and they're going to want at least two CDs worth of outtakes for each one. Yeah, one for each. And we've named quite a few songs because, you know, they didn't put their singles on the albums. So, and there were several singles that year that had B-sides that never showed up on anything. So there's material to work with. Well, there's a, quite a few things they could do. We'll see. Yeah, and the idea that we could get something of the quality of the Revolver release for these songs, you know, and think about the songs that he would be redoing. It would be If I Needed Someone and Nowhere Man and... Norwegian Wood. Norwegian Wood, right. Or the harmonies on Michelle. There's some great songs to (laughs) reattack. And hopefully they will consider giving us some of the isolations. You know, I talked about that with the revolver box. That's something I would like to get rather than some of the slightly samey outtakes. Give us some of the bits and pieces of the isolations. It doesn't have to be the whole take for each instrument, but, you know, do what Lennon did. Do an evolution mix. Yeah, it'd be great. And, you know, they, they actually worked on weight during the help sessions, and decided it wasn't good enough, and so they added more to it for Rubber Soul. I'd like to hear the differing versions, if they're significant. What did they add? That would be really cool. As we grow from piece to piece, here's how they changed the sound of the record. Right. I guess it's the songs that really excite me for these releases. A clear mix of i'll be back is just i think would be really cool to get the vocals yes to be able to hear them and uh, in isolation that would be so cool yeah i love you so i'm the one who wants you yes i'm the one who wants you oh 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 you Could find better things to do than to break my heart again. This time I will try to show that I'm trying to pretend. The possibilities for this collection are, are pretty big. Uh, Not to mention whatever we don't know exists. I mean, (laughs) that's still the thing about the revolver box. I think we all go back to it's the yellow submarine stuff just is great. It's amazing. It's historical. But it's also we had no inkling that any of that existed. Right. The demos that were kind of going back and forth. You know, we have a half of a demo of We Can Work It Out. Which John taped over. Which (laughs) But Paul probably still has it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They clearly were demoing things a lot like that. It would be nice to have access to some of that. But still, ultimately, it's George Martin's original mix, which is so-so. I mean, it was the ping-pong stereo, for goodness sake. Yeah, it needs to be f- fixed in that so that it, it's not all one side. He kind of thought he did it with the original CD, but no one really likes that mix. And that may well just be because 
there's only so much you could do with it. With the Mal technology, Giles will have everything to play with. And we get a, a really, really good mix of Rubber Soul, which is something we've just never had in stereo. That just uh, pleases me. <laughs> Let's just hope it comes to fruition. But, I mean, Giles has always been pretty accurate when he's kind of let these things out. And, I mean, they know what they're doing. Someone may well have said, oh, oh yeah, you can, you can mention that. Right. So. And the idea that they're doing two records instead of one. Great idea. I have to think that that is based around the fact that they want to charge a premium price for it. And there just are not enough individual outtakes without being slagged by the critics for either record. Right. It's interesting the way the the business marketing has affected it because according to, well, George, for one, he always felt like Rubber Soul and Revolver were parts of the same record. There, there's a similar feeling to him. So rather than have Rubber Soul and Revolver together, we're going to have it with help. And really, the differences in help to Rubber Soul is kind of what everybody comments on, that Rubber Soul was the blossoming of their takeover of the studio. Is the, We know we're coming to the end of the touring year, so what are we going to do next? Yeah. Whereas Help was not only smack dab in the middle of touring, it was, okay, we're doing songs for a film. Another movie. They were still on that treadmill at that point. Although I would easily say that there's kind of a morose feeling about Beatles for sale, Tired Beatles, that doesn't carry over to Help. Assuming they do the same thing and we get a 64 box next year, so that would be Hard Day's Night and Beatles for Sale. Right, which I guess would be interesting because there's such joy and enthusiasm in Hard Day's Night. You know, it's not like Beatles for Sale is a depressing record. I think it gets a bad rep in part because of the cover. That's me in my Dylan period, you know, because the word clown's in it, you know, and I think I always objected to the word clown or clown image, even that Bowie's using, because that was always artsy-fartsy. Yeah. But Dylan had used it, so I, I thought it was all right, and it rhymed with whatever I was doing. So that was my Dylan period. It's part of me th suspects I'm a loser, and the other part of me thinks I'm God Almighty. It's that bit, you know. I don't allow that anymore. Lyrically, it's darker. Musically, we were learning a lot. You know, this is where we learned a lot of the music and putting together some of the uh, arrangements and things. You know, we're quite quick in the studio when you think about it. Two songs in three hours. That's what's up in the news of the day. The other thing that happened fairly recently was Danny has now completely moved Dark Horse, including George's stuff, over to BMG. I mean, it's Dark Horse as being released on BMG, so George is now the only of the solo Beatles not with Universal Music which I think isn't that big a deal, but it will make non-Beatles collaborations, not that they've tried that many of them, but Apple has looked to doing one or more of those things in the past. Will they still be able to? Right. You know, whatever, it would have to be proven by money. <laughs> Market forces, yep. Right, if there's money there, we can come to an agreement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, they are kind of letting Danny run this roost. John referred to Beatle business as kind of like playing Monopoly, but really it's their children that are mainly faced by this. Everything around Apple kind of all just sort of folded up. Alan Klein nicely and neatly took care of all of that by getting rid of everybody. Interesting strategic move. Yeah. So, I mean, Yoko heard business dealings were quite different than what they might have been. For sure. Everybody's having to deal with the Beatle fortune at this point and the merchandising of the Beatles. It's a bigger version of what all these other artists are going through. And if you're Bruce Springsteen or you're Bob Dylan, sod it, take it, write me a really, really big check. Yeah. <laughs> totally understand. The kids don't want to deal with it. I'll let them live their own lives here. McCartney can recut. You finally gave me my money. <laughs> Considering that MPL is a player in this world, I don't see that happening. <laughs> I see him and 
the children being more on the purchaser side than on the seller side. <laughs> this news and the question of Danny brings us to our main topic for the day in what is now, oh goodness, nearly nine years ago, the George Harrison, the two George Harrison boxes came out. And in part in celebration to that, Danny put on a show in Los Angeles. Yeah, with what is in effect the next generation's appreciation. Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, Brian Wilson's in this show. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he is. There are a couple of people, Ann Wilson, but most of the people performing are, you know, young artists. Younger. But it, it does lean to younger, youngest, youngish artists than old stalwarts. As we'll see, some of them have maintained a profile in the music world, and some of them haven't. Right. I mean, it's kind of like we did that show on the Linda Tribute concert back last year. It's the same sort of thing. Yeah. Although Paul did bring in actual contemporaries of Linda in some cases. So the backing band that Danny put together, that is a really cool backing band. You got Jimmy Vivino, and you got Ben Harper, and you got a pedal steel player named Matt Penn. Really cool stuff. And they have a, what, four or five-piece horn section. Right. It really adds a lot to the songs that have horns on them. Yeah, it's well put together. I don't, they do versions that are faithful to George's music, but it was wide enough to let whoever was doing the vocal kind of do their version of it. A lot of deep tracks and a lot of young uh, artists who've, you know, got really great different takes on the um, on the songs themselves. And some of them are wildly different from George's. Not too many, but a couple. There really weren't that many that were that different. A few, but, you know. Yeah, I, w I would agree. And they give them enough space. And in some cases, they do slightly alter the tempos and take it in a slightly different direction, which is a good thing. Yeah. And we can talk about the individual songs as they come up. There's an interview with Danny on this disc, and, you know, it's like, well, didn't they already do that with the concert for George? And, well, they certainly did. But, you know, Danny, who has participated in a lot of these sorts of tributes, said that this show was meant to be more about the actual songwriting, as opposed to the many performances of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which eventually just turned into guitar battles. Right. That song does not appear in this movie. The go-to version seems to be the Prince and Danny version. But it was interesting when I saw the list of songs to hear Danny talk about. It's really about the songwriting. And his, and I thought, well, then why are you doing Got My Mind Set on You and If Not For You? I mean, I, I could see certain reasons. If Not For You was a big hit for Olivia Newton-John. And she basically did George's version. So it kind of becomes George's music, although Bob Dylan wrote it. And as far as got my mind set on you, that's certainly become associated with George. Yeah. It's not like anybody ever really remembers the Rudy Clark version. <laughs> True. But one of the things I like most about George's music is his relationship between rhythm and melody, which is more demonstrated in the music that he wrote. And we get some interesting comments from the folks who are on stage and who have played these songs. And that's part of the recognition that they bring to the floor is like, well, you know, I never realized this and here it is. Yeah. Ben Harper talked about how he had to learn that slide part for the song he plays. And it took him a week to do so. <laughs> right. Cause he realized he kind of had to do it a certain way or it wouldn't sound right. It will be wrong. Otherwise. Yes. And again, something about, George's music is that the stuff he worked out is so part of the song that to take it out diminishes it. I mean, to change it too much is too much. To get it right, 
you know, you could get up there and do a hack version of it, but if you want to do it justice in a way that you can only hope would make him proud, you, you got to put the time in. And by the way, George is one of the five greatest slide guitar players of all time. I mean, I, I spent the better part of a week working on that slide line alone. We'll talk about this as we get to it. In a lot of cases, George changed it too much on Live in Japan. <laughs> right. He was a terrible tribute guy. He couldn't do George Harrison at all. He learned from his good friend Bob Dylan, who, well, I don't want to play it like that. I'm going to play it like this tonight. <laughs> Bob Dylan is insane. <laughs> How long did it take you to recognize, oh, that's Tangled Up in Blue he's playing? Yeah, I saw him on on the Grammys one time, and he did my favorite song. And it wasn't until I read the review in Rolling Stone that I realized that I didn't hear that he played my favorite song. He was just playing <laughs> music, you know, and he was doing this stuff, and I didn't recognize it. And then they said, and the second song was Maggie's Farm. I'm like, <laughs> really? So, <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes you don't do yourself very well. So the, the show starts, the first act out on the stage is Conan O'Brien, <laughs> someone you might not expect, but Conan is, of course, a big fan of George, a big Beatles guy. Yeah, I was expecting to see Andy Richter on bass. <laughs> because of the ensuing years, his, his opening joke doesn't age very well. Uh. <laughs> right. I want to apologize. I was told this was a tribute to George Michael. I spent a week learning the song Faith. So I apologize. Not saying that it needed to be cut, but that didn't age well. It's of its time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not anything that anybody's going to cancel over, but, well, all right. I mean... Right. Maybe he should have thought about that a little bit more. <laughs> and he comes out and surprisingly does Old Brown Shoe. And it comes off pretty good. He says, let's put the comic on first, give him a frigging guitar, and that will set the bar really low. Right. But it doesn't. He does a decent job. No, he, he, does, he does a good job. He sings much better than I ever actually thought he could. Right. But it is a good introduction to the band, who pull the song off very well. He has a decent voice and does that song, which in its way really illustrates what George could do. Strange offbeat rhythms, a bizarre chord, and that lyric. So it was a good choice. For your top lip, I'm in the queue. For years, I never, never, ever understood what George was singing <laughs> on that line. <laughs> really? You know, just because on the released version, on the Beatles version, you know, he kind of does a Dylan mumble through yeah. it. Yeah. For your sweet top lip, I'm in the queue. That's what he sings. And here, Conan sings it. You don't, you get what he's saying. It, it kind of reminds me of the Please Please Me outtakes. It's like, I don't want to sound complaining, but you know there's always rain in my heart. Right. <laughs> Well, they have to be singing something. <laughs> but at the same time, regarding this song, I never could understand what they were singing at the end of the song. That falsetto part. Well, they give to the girls. I can't tell what they're singing. Conan and they sing something. I've seen somebody else do the song, and they have a whole nother version of it so i don't think anybody really knows what he's singing louis louis time again and giles martin didn't solve that <laughs> <laughs> this is true um, and actually the version that it reminds me of more than the final version is the outtake version because george takes a slightly more deliberate approach to the vocal couple things that conan has done which are beatly conan was the host of the george harrison guitar app which sadly no one has bothered to update in the last couple of years and is no longer accessible through your ipad you can get crazy you know you could lose your mind it's like staring at the sun 
you can just start looking at little nicks and scratches, and then you can you can go into this whole world of what is what's the story behind that? What does it all mean? And then soon you're just a babbling madman. So I should put this one down. I think here you should take this away from me. And then you should take me to the hospital. <laughs> it was a really really cool out. They took half a dozen of George's guitars and just went right in and it did really high resolution 3D photos. Hmm. And so you you could rotate it and you could actually go in and investigate the scratches that are on the guitars. And, you know, there were little videos and all sorts of random things. And the host of this thing was Conan O'Brien. Wow. You'll see bits and pieces of it on YouTube. Primarily Conan drooling over Rocky. <laughs> right. They'll do a straw poll, you know. Who do you like better, Rocky or Lucy? For whatever reason, maybe because it didn't make them enough money, they didn't bother to update it. So. <laughs> Oh, well. People have managed to take out most of the actual images and things, so you can at least see them if you know the appropriate place to go on the internet. Ah. But the app was cooler. And then, like I say, most of the videos have been ripped, and they are available through YouTube. So right. no one's asked them to take them down. So Right. The other thing I wanted to mention about Conan was he did a really funny bit when he was the host of Late Night, where he actually went over to England and talked to Paul about Flaming Pie. And, you know, lots of non sequiturs, lots of really funny stuff, and Paul actually is visibly amused. <laughs> right now, you could be writing a great song, except, I you, am. Have, except you have to. Oh, right now? I am right now. Does it involve me in any way? No, just a second. <laughs> Okay, there it is, finished. Really? Can I, come on, just have half the credit, because I was here? No, no. You didn't even know I was writing it. I could see in your eyes that a song was being written, so I think I should get some credit. Just 20%. It's all there. I cannot reveal it just yet. (laughs) Give me two more minutes and it'll be finished. Okay. Is that available? I think that's, you know, that's it. Well, I'm finished with you, Conan. You're finished? I think that's it. Now, you have people that are going to escort me out here and kind of toss me out onto the street. They've been briefed already. Okay. Well, uh... So if, uh... I guess I'll never be seeing you again, then. Nobody may be seeing you again. (laughs) Okay. This may be the end of your series and career. Really? Yeah. But, um, I have written the song now. Conrad's in London. He's a great chap. He's a terrific person, but he's never coming back. I love that song. It's not bad. I don't like the end where I get Don't killed. Come back. Thanks very much for uh, spending some time with us, and uh, a thrill to meet you. And uh, good fun to be on your show. Thank you. Good to see you. That is available. That's on YouTube. Cool. That takes us away from the comedian. Although we will get another comedian in part two. <laughs> right. Who also plays it completely straight and does a, a pretty good job. Yeah. That is foreshadowing. That is coming next week. <laughs> Stay tuned for part two. <laughs> so what we end up with as the second piece of music is an Austin band or the singer for an Austin band, Spoon. His name is Britt Daniel. And he does I Me Mine. Before we get into the song, Spoon has done a cover of Christmas Time is Here Again, which is something to uh, listen to. It amuses me. <laughs> generation although they're still around they're still reasonably popular but they are kind of sliding into the current adults of rock and roll (laughs) they're slightly younger than you two and blur but older than the kids that will say why are those old guys still playing everybody gets old (laughs) everybody must get (laughs) stoned okay um, must get old 
It's a good version. Yeah. Brit Daniel and Spoon is not with them. I've seen Spoon. They're a really good live action. They actually will play Beatles songs during their show. Cool. Well, he, he does a good job. God has a good voice. His lead vocal is a bit more soulful than the one that George delivered. Yeah. For the most part, throughout this, the music is pretty faithful. Not always, but kind of normally is and then the singer puts their own spin on it when the music deviates they let you know that it's deviating we're gonna do all of these songs that are pretty faithful and then there's this right the next song is ballad of sir frankie crisp at the time we were getting the remasters for the first time i remember thinking it's like that oh sir frankie crisp is a lot louder in this version than it is on the version on the record but now that we have the proper version shall we say the box it's like oh i guess it isn't i guess george actually heard it that way yeah and should be pointed out that danny is on this yeah he comes out with his guitar he sings a little bit of backing but mostly he's singing the harmonies yeah yeah the artist is jonathan bates who i have to admit is not someone that I really know, although he has a great voice. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know him either. The project he's associated with is a loose collective, a Plastic Ono Band kind of thing named Melodrone, M-E-L-L-O-W-D-R-O-N-E. Right. And there's an interview with him from around the time of this where he comments that his influences range from Danny Elfman to the French avant-garde to George Harrison. <laughs> Well, nothing wrong with that list. And that what he really wants to do is to break free from pop cliches and force people to look at themselves and their world in unfamiliar ways. Well, I don't know whether he quite accomplished that here. Although, I mean, you know, again, comparing it to what we had had to that point, it was kind of a slightly different version of uh, Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp. It did strike me as being all that different. It more matches to the current mix than any of the previous mixes. It strips away some of these specter-isms. I mean, it's live, but still, you can apply the specter-isms to them if you want to. Yeah. Even on the live stage. When I hear this, I'm not thinking of mixes so much as the version of the song. And it's pretty close. I don't think Danny would have gone for moving too far away from it. <laughs> well, I agree with that. On anything he's playing on. Yeah. If he's not playing on it, he'll let them do what they want to do. But And I think the differences are such that they may have even been suggested by Danny because obviously Danny had been hearing it all these years from the Masters or from you know a high generation dub of the Masters. And it's like, oh, no, it's really supposed to sound like this, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting question. I saw an interview with Giles Martin, and he said, basically, you know, we didn't really hear Beatles music and that stuff around the house because that was dad went to work <laughs> and that's what he did. And so that wasn't really much in our lives. And I wonder, had Danny been hearing that stuff all these years? Did he sit around and listen to George's music all the time? He had to have at least been familiar with it. And we know that he did listen to some Beatles. I mean, there's a famous story about the first time Danny really completely got obsessed by a rock and roll record was a Surfing USA because it was in the film Teen Wolf. So George, at that point, kind of apparently sat him down and said, no, no, don't start there. Go back to where it started from. He played him some Chuck Berry, and he apparently played him some of the Beatles stuff in there. So, well. I mean, I guess I got lucky because I got George Harrison. <laughs> you know, um, it's good music. I, I'm... Uh, you know, I'm honored to be a part of his legacy. And, and also, we've made so much music together and, and spent so much time in the studio in my house uh, in Friar Park in, in Henley, where I grew up. 
the studio was directly below my bedroom, so my floor has rattled, you know, my whole life. So I would always go downstairs and and just see what was going on. I remember the traveling Wilburys there, and so I was I'm very comfortable in the studio, and I kind of grew up learning how to produce and play and you know for me it was facilitated very much by my dad and, and we were best friends so spending a lot of time in the studio with him was very natural and you know in in real life do you sit around and listen to dad's music and maybe not it's a good question yeah and obviously he has taken his own influences and you listen to his independent recordings some of it is harrison-esque some of it is not he right. likes to go in all sorts of different directions yeah although actually a lot of the stuff that he's getting paid for these days the the film score composing the tv theme composing is for the most part in the george harrison style spirit comes to me free and wild love and care for me just like your child Okay, on to someone who is known to us, Nora Jones, who is actually Ravi Shankar's daughter. She actually is. Actually is the actual Ravi Shankar's actual daughter. Right. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> right. <laughs> you stole my line. <laughs> and she does something. And she doesn't gender switch it. She sings the lyrics as they are, which is kind of an interesting choice. Yeah. Well, that's not that unusual, I don't think, for some singers. Her voice lends itself to that melody. Works real well. She does a good job. goes a little bit sultrier to me she sounded like <laughs> nora jones recordings when i find myself in times of trouble mother mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom let it be and in my hour of darkness she is standing right in front of me Speaking words of wisdom, let it be, let it be. She sings a certain way, and she sings a certain way on this, and so it wouldn't be a uh, copy of George's style in any way. Here's one where the backing is just tremendous. I mean, something is just such a hard song to get correct, and they do it. Yeah, definitely a good version. This is probably one of the better songs in the concert, although everything is pretty good. I didn't really hear one that I thought tanked. We're getting there. <laughs> well. And, and you maybe. may disagree with me. Yeah, so. I was going to say, maybe we are. Maybe not. So the next song was one we talked about. George didn't write. Got my mind set on you. Brandon Flowers from The Killers. Yeah. It's an enthusiastic song, and his he's got an enthusiastic voice, and... Although he's kind of doing George here in the vocal. I got my mind set on you. 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 Yeah, I think his natural vocal is a little bit different. He, he was trying to do it like George did it on the record. Oh, 
is the first song in the set which is not a Beatles song and is not an All Things Must Pass song, and it's a cover. <laughs> right. But, you know, it was a big song for George. <laughs> good song. Good arrangement. You could dance to it. Uh, he phrases things slightly differently, maybe just to keep it from being an exact copy of the record. <laughs> then the live horns, you got to love that. Yeah. And then his other addition is the call and response thing, which, yes, that's a cheap way to get the audience into it, but it's nice. <laughs> I give it thumbs up. This one might be better than George's version on Live in Japan. That's one of the ones which kind of didn't survive the transition quite as well as it should have uh, on the concert album. But I have to admit, and you might be able to tell, I don't ever go searching for this song. We've talked about it before. I mean, I like it a lot more than you do. Yeah. You like it because, well, you've got people around you who, who really, really like it. <laughs> right. And, I mean, you know, there's nothing hugely special about it. It is a three-minute pop song. It's his. It is. From the point of doing Cloud Nine, it's kind of a nice change of pace, and it's obvious why it was a hit record. Yeah. Good on George. Good on Jeff. Watching Brandon Flowers sing this, you know, it, it's a decent version. It works, yes. I was entertained, so it worked. So next up is another Austin band, not from Austin, but they moved to Austin in 2007. Heartless Bastards with a cover of If Not For You. If not for you. And because it's a female singer, it sounds kind of like Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> if not for you, the winter would hold no spring. Couldn't hear a robin sing. I just wouldn't have a clue. If not for you. The arrangement is such that it's slightly more gospely, I think. Yeah, I can see that. All that's missing is Billy Preston coming in and helping him out in there. <laughs> right. But it stands up to the treatment very well. Again, they do it well. The band plays it correctly. <laughs> so it was good. So we move on to Ian Asbury with Be Here Now. There's a brief interview clip with him where he's talking about George and George's spirituality. There's a really nice quote. The reason I chose the song Be Here Now because... It's not the flashiest song and it's not, you know, the hit. But for me, spiritually, it's the moment when he really had that awakening of, like, being present in the present moment and that's everything. And the material world not working as a construct to keep the ego together, it's just not enough. Ram Dass's biography. As souls, we are not under... Time or space. We are infinite. And this is where the concert took a left turn that I was totally thrilled by. You know, hmm. Be Here Now is not a song that rises to the top of the George list. But I've always found it moves very slowly. But the melody is so wonderful. Be here. Yeah, now. And it's not the way Ian Asprey does it, it moves even more slowly. He takes <laughs> it, the tempo even further down than George did. Right. You could see it almost as a meditation. You know, on the original recording, I love George's guitar work on it. So I was really happy to see and hear this song. And then the acoustic guitar ending is also really nice. Yeah.
Ian Asbury ends it with all hail to George Harrison. It's like, <laughs> okay, uh, I don't know what George would have thought of that. He was a little bit uncomfortable with some of the near-religious adulation he got on the 74 tour. Right. But, you know, that salutation, you could see it like, George is my guru. Again, I'm not quite sure what George would have thought of that, although, I mean, George would say that Ravi was his. Right. You know, if it's a, if it's that line, then maybe he would get it. Right. I didn't know that Ian Asbury was from Liverpool. Yeah, surprise, and grew up amongst Beatlemania. (laughs) What he says is, on his dad's side, I had three aunts who were all teenagers, and on my mom's side, I had seven aunts who were all teenagers, and they were all obsessed with music. Everybody was into the Beatles, obviously, but my father was also into things like old gospel spiritual stuff, like Paul Robeson. The music was always in my home. My mom loved Johnny Mathis. (laughs) That's kind of cool. Yeah. And not what you would expect from the lead singer of the cult. (laughs) Right. Interesting background. <laughs> we move from there. We've got to go back up-tempo for sure, and they picked a nice song uh, with Wawa. Yeah, by the guy from The Strokes. He did a, a decent job. And, of course, the horns and the background vocals. Really nice. I I like that. Yeah. The one thing that I thought was kind of funny is the solo he decides to play is a more stereotypical Clapton-esque solo than what we got on the original record from Clapton. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's not to the detriment of the song, but it's like the real Eric made a choice and you're choosing to go a different way. I, I don't know how appropriate it really was to do it that way but all right good on you it sounded good i liked it you got a perfectly serviceable eric clapton solo there and you're gonna go a different way okay we move on to if i needed someone from the jamestown revival again we get a just a very brief interview with a quote that i really like we picked if I needed someone because the harmonies, it seemed to lend itself to what we do. And then from the very beginning, uh, when that little guitar riff kicks in, it's something that sounds really simple, and then you try to play it, and it's it's a little bit harder to learn. It takes a minute. Uh, and then you start to appreciate what he did. It's just off of a simple A chord. But that, you know, those three notes that he played, it sets the stage for the whole entire song. That's. That's the hook. If I needed someone to love, you're the one that I'd be thinking of. If I needed someone. And George was very humble in thanking Roger McGuinn. <laughs> If you never have listened to The Bells of Rimney, you should, because you can see how the two songs are very much connected. What'll you give me? They're the bells of Rimney. Is the home for the future? And you were saying that this is another Texas band. Yeah, they're from the Hill Country. I still think the Curious George hat is is a bit (laughs) much, but that is what they do in that area. Yeah. (laughs) Gotta have your hat. The arrangement here is just slightly more country than the original, but it still stays pretty faithful, I think. Right. We move on to one that we're going to see whether we agree on or not. We, We pretty much agreed on everything else to this point, but... Song number 11, Art of Dying by Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Uh, This is the first real wrong turn in the show, I think. 
to you? That's my opinion on it. Do you, <laughs> do you like it? or I did like it. It's one of the few that take a different approach. A completely different approach. It's got a kind of a, a slide in it. Kind of spooky band from San Francisco. I could see that approach with this lyric. The comment I have in my notes here is that they turned up the Alice Cooper shtick by about 30%. <laughs> I kind of view this song as, as a spiritual song. And as you know, the way they play it here, well, I don't know whether that really comes through. It plays as a little bit dark, a little bit maudlin. Yeah, I would agree with that. But for some people, the art of dying is dark and maudlin. It's interesting. It's also interesting considering the history of the song, you know, that it had been around since Revolver days. Right. One of the big questions is what do those demos sound like? This is a song that I really never could have seen the Beatles doing a version of. Right. Especially with nothing Mr. Epstein can do. <laughs> well, I mean, the get back version doesn't count. <laughs> I don't know. Do the different interpretations of your dad's music ever help you find any new insights into his work? I mean, was there ever a moment when a song sort of revealed itself as something different than what you'd considered? You know, I, I was specifically liked uh, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club's uh, version of The Art of Dying. I didn't realize that was like grunge you know (laughs) until i saw brmc play and i was like oh this is this is like a shoegazy grunge song They, like, unlocked that song for me. So there's a little bit of stage business going on. So we get a couple of quick clips of a bunch of different interviews. Uh, Danny is coming up for his solo spot here. He has a really heartfelt interview clip where he talks about that why this means so much to him to do it here. LA that's got such a good pool of musicians. I'm really glad we're doing it here. You know, my old man passed away in LA. Um, it's the last place I ever saw him. I've been reduced to tears several times this week by uh, unexpected performances. Wow, that's got to be a little tough, but I get it. Then Ben Harbour. There is rhythmic intricacies that play off of vocal intricacies. That's a really nice description and pretty different from a lot of the ones I've heard before. Totally. It's what I was saying earlier, that part of what makes George's music so identifiable in a way he just has that sense of playing those games between melody and lyric and the you know the way he sings the rhythm of his vocal against the rhythm that he's created musically is really fascinating he's really good well i mean to a certain extent it is the fact that he had the two best teachers in the world in lennon and mccartney and he integrated what he liked out of both of their writing styles. Right. But he had that sort of sense early on. I think you can hear it in his kind of Django Reinhardt stuff in Till There Was You. Well, even Don't Bother Me has a little bit of that. Yeah. It's inherent in him. He does it a lot in most of his songs. Just look for it. Or it feels so natural you don't think about it. It is right. It's right. And I think that's what we were talking about, you know, Ben Harper learning that part. You know, you don't realize that if you do it differently, it's wrong. (laughs) That then leads us into what Jimmy Vavino says is that, you know, it's funny to hear him talking about all these kids. It's like, well, these guys aren't quite kids. I mean, most of them are coming up on 30 at this point. (laughs) Right. Well, I think they're kids. 
<laughs> anyway, part of the joy of this show and the reason for the show existing is that I said to Danny, it's like the thing that's going to happen is all these kids are going to walk away better songwriters for, for, for diving into this material and learning George's process of harmony and chords and lyrics and beautiful melodies and playing. I think it's really healthy to do these kind of things to sort of remember you know, where it came from. And he's right. I mean, you know, he gets it. I mean, of course, he's, uh, he's a big Beatles guy, and you know, he knows what he's learned from studying the canon. Right, right. Yeah, and then then Britt Daniel from Spoon kind of deflates the whole thing a little bit. Yeah, he wrote a lot of great riffs, <laughs> which, again, is also correct, but it's yes. just kind of a little bit, little bit funny after all of this uh, semi-serious musicological talk. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. But he did write great riffs, you know. I always think of the riff he wrote for And I Love Her. You can't do that song without that riff. Well, and it took until the George Harrison doc, the Scorsese living in the material world, for Paul to acknowledge that. Right. Well, I think it's a, an overall, well, we've talked about this, the, the overall changing concept of what songwriting is. You know, now you see songwriting credits on a lot of modern songs and there's five or six people back then it's like well there's Lennon mccartney there's jagger and richards and nobody could break into that even though they were contributing essential parts so after this break we get danny doing savoy truffle i like this i guess i never was fully aware of what the melody line was in the when he does it the falsetto because i always thought that it went to the lower melody but he sings it in a falsetto. It's up front. You know, it's not like it's all sandwiched in between other harmonies. So I kept going, oh, that's interesting that, that that's the melody line. And I would assume that he knows. Coffee desserts, you know it's good news. Well, I mean, we go and listen to the record. It's certainly in there. Oh, yeah. I mean, there may be other stuff that kind of buries it a little bit, but I'm sure it's in the actual mix. You'll have to have them all pulled out after the Savoy Truffle has harmonies in it. And that fits in as well, doesn't it? Hello, Mal. <laughs> Hello, Mal. Yeah. We, we got to go back and get another White Album, Giles. <laughs> right. Danny is... I think a little bit intentionally trying to not sound like George. I think his natural voice and kind of everything I've heard is a little bit more George-esque. It's almost like he's putting on the affectation here in trying not to sound like his father. That may be, I don't know. He did that uh, Levi's commercial, and I mean, it is a spot-on copy of George's vocal from the original record. Because you're sweet and lovely again. I love you. Which way is his natural singing voice? Eh. You look on some of the things done with Ben Harper, and again, it's still probably a little bit more George-like than he's doing here. Here, there was a slight mistake in the guitars, I think, but you know, it just shows you that not everybody's perfect, even <laughs> even in a situation like this. <laughs> but it's a good version, absolutely. Track thirteen for you, Blue, Chase Cole, and Brian Bell. This is one where having a female lead on there is very noticeable it turns the song a little bit girly to put a slightly negative connotation to it which i don't quite mean it's just <laughs> very different She also makes a couple of melody choices, which I disagree with. The, the melody 
because you're a sweet and lovely girl, I love you. And then he goes, because you're a sweet and lovely girl, it's true. But she goes, true. And it becomes more sing-songy than bluesy, which was what George was going for. But as an effort, it's all right, and it's not a bad version. It's not bad. My comment was, eh. You got to have some things at the top and some things at the bottom and some things in the middle. <laughs> right. This is probably closer to the middle. Right. It's not Mr. Moonlight. <laughs> and then the last track on what we're covering this week, Ann Wilson, Beware of Darkness. This is great for the win. Yeah, it's classic Ann for sure. Um, and her, her voice fits it really well. And the arrangement and the playing, it, it's just all spot on. Yeah. And somehow the melody fits her voice really well. Watch out. Of course, Hart had been singing Beatles songs since the time they started up. They were really, you know, we talk about the 80s bands where the females started to speak up for themselves. The Hart was really the origins of that. Yeah, she does a great job and makes it come off very much her. Ann Wilson commented in an interview that she had actually gotten a chance to talk to George in the 90s. And that George had asked her to come and perform at some environmental benefit. Although I don't know quite what that would have been. I'm, you know, maybe that would have been the natural law thing, which isn't quite an environmental benefit. But <laughs> I don't know what George was involved in that would have had a show other than that. I mean, he was kind of involved with the PETA folks a little bit, although that's more Paul's deal. So she says that uh, uh, that she couldn't because she was on the road with Hart, but. She did get to talk to him, and, and George actually sang the chorus of Alone to me down the phone. It was so cute. <laughs> I can see George doing that. <laughs> that was in The Guardian in May of 2021, so so a more recent interview. So, you know, that, that takes us to the halfway point. The whole show is available on YouTube. It was also released on CD and on video, but the easiest way to get at it these days is on youtube we're gonna move on to the second half next week from what we've got for this first half is pretty representative of the show but you know we've got a lot of the bigger artists coming in the second half i think as mentioned we have brian wilson and al jardine and a famous comedian one weird al yankovic yeah weird al plays it completely straight but we'll we'll get to that next week well your version of straight and my version may differ <laughs> okay <laughs> he does some funny business but not to the detriment of the song yeah but we'll cover so, that that's where we're at we'll see whether we get anything more news wise in the next week uh, and well go and look around uh, i will look around as well and <laughs> if may's film is indeed playing in april in tyler i'll let you know yeah please do, please do. <laughs> all right thanks everybody Talk to you next week. Next week. Good night. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by J. Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. said to Danny it's like the thing that's going to happen is all these kids are going to walk away better songwriters for 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 diving into this material and learning George's process of harmony and chords and lyrics and beautiful melodies and playing I think it's really healthy to do these kind of things to sort of remember you know where it came from he certainly wrote a lot of great riffs I stole this uh, Beatles for easy guitar 
book, and that's basically how I learned how to play guitar, was just because I knew the songs, so I could kind of play along um, and strum and, and sing to these uh, very easy versions of the tune. What's exciting is you get to see the repertoire and the, the accumulation of so much good music, and it's impressive to see what some of these, you know, the giants have done. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.